Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. This is like the coolest fucking podcast I've ever seen. Sitting in that seat, I realized that the art... The music, the action, even my experience as a SEAL in this particular genre, all of it was absolutely critical for me to step into that role as a director. I need to just say, yeah. Yeah, it's not an actor, but being an actor is like you're the paint, but the director is the artist. The director is the holds the vision of the painting. It completely shifted my perspective, and that's why... The only stories that I'm truly interested in telling as a director are the ones that are about the propagation of love. What we'll do to protect it, what we'll do if we've lost it, what we'll do to get it and experience it. You can put any kind of framework you want around it, right? Like, oh, I'm a manifesting generator or I'm a yogi or I'm a this or that. But in the end, it's like if we just stay open and curious about what we are right now, willing to take the next step towards love, like that's it. This life, this gift, the extreme beauty, these moments, so easy to forget it 24 hours after it's over. Find yourself off track again, questioning why you exist. New discoveries, oh shit, this is why I exist. We just keep going through this incredible journey. Well, welcome to the B-Fest 2023 panel. We have an amazing lineup today. Uh, For those of you who don't know, this is Jared Picard, Eben Britton, Vanessa Lambert, Mikal Vega, and Del Bigtree. Thanks for being here. And first of all, I just want to acknowledge the amazing space that we've been able to enjoy all week at Palmaya. Alex and his team have been tremendous. The hospitality, the food, the setting, the energy, the everything has been terrific. So thank you for them for being so amazing. Uh, I think in keeping with the theme that that Dell and I were were just on and in following that thread this idea of surrender and this idea of not knowing uh, oftentimes where we're heading and why we're heading in these directions. I think everyone up here has a really unique story and journey that, that I would love to just tap into. Um, and I'd love to actually just start with you, Vanessa. Um, last night, you know, I think about you, your humble beginnings as really a CrossFit athlete, right? Many years ago, to doing a beautiful set of music that was written and played and oh my god how how did you get there you know honestly i think it goes towards sort of what del was talking about before is just noticing where the love is and and following that and i think honestly you know different periods of my life, I've been drawn towards different landscapes and sometimes it's been more physical and sometimes it's been more emotional and sometimes it's more spiritual. And I think that that's just beautiful to have the ability to allow your facets 
to be seen and experienced. And so I think part of it for me is just like, I never was so attached to any one identity that I couldn't go and put on another hat and I couldn't go put on another costume. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> I can't say I had the same experience in my life. There's a lot of attachment. I, this is who I am. God damn it. But good yeah, for you. No. And I think, I think, you know, we've all been at B-Fest. Maybe this is our first time or second time, but We've had the human design courses. We've had Kundalini yoga. We've had ebb and flow. We've had, you know, Mikal's class. We've had all of these different, different experiences where we actually get to get curious about who we are and why we are wired the way that we are. And I think it kind of doesn't matter in the end, you can put any kind of framework you want around it, right? Like, oh, I'm a manifesting generator or I'm a yogi or I'm a this or that. But in the end, it's like, if we just stay open and curious about what we are right now and then just willing to take the next step towards love, like that's it. That's all it really is. You don't have to necessarily get too crazy about it, you know? And I think for me, that's just what I was willing to do. I was willing to take that risk towards the next step. Yeah. Cause last year you performed with Samuel J and that was beautiful. And I had no idea that this was part of who you are. And so what was that journey like to go from maybe that experience to one year later performing a full set? Well, I think it comes down to capacity. And this is something that, you know, we have, we share teachers, um, Mikhail and I, and we talk a lot about this in the Kundalini yoga world is just the level of attainment that you have to carry whatever you're up to. And I think that over the years I've just been committed to increasing the level of capacity. And so last year I didn't have the capacity to put on the festival and, you know, run the classes in the morning and do all the things and do a set. But that was a whole year of me doing more yoga, more meditation, more devotion, getting more curious. And so this year I had more capacity and that's really cool. And I think it's important for all of us to actually like let that sink in because sometimes when we're in these esoteric concepts of like attainment and capacity and blah, 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 we're like, what the hell does that even mean? It means that one year you can only play one song at the festival and the next year you can do a whole set. Like that's what it means. That level of capacity grows. And so I think that's what happened for me is I just went, oh, I'm up to the job now. All right. So I have two questions. One is what is the writing process like for you? And then what did you let go of in this past year that allowed for greater capacity? The writing process for me is interesting. I've been writing songs for a really long time now. Um, in the beginning, it was much more of a collaborative effort. So I'd be with other songwriters and we kind of mix and match and create ideas and sketches about things and kind of come up with songs. But as you guys heard last night, a lot of my songwriting comes from the Akashic Records now. And so I work in the Akashic field, I open the Akashic records and I literally allow the songs to come into me and, and allow myself to be a channel for those sounds. And I believe that those are just divine frequencies that are given to me to bring. And so I just step up to the plate and accept the experience and do my best to translate it. And just one note on that. Uh, I know some of you are part of 
the women's Akashic. I don't know the exact title, but there you go. The Starseed yes. Collective and and learning and and doing the Akashic record readings. Uh, both Peyton and I have had readings from Vanessa, and as I was sharing earlier, was going through a really challenging time and stuff that I had no idea that was linked to my own challenges came through in the records and really gave me some grounding into how to move through it. And so super grateful for that. And if anyone's never had that experience, I highly recommend reaching out to Vanessa or one of the women who are doing the work. It's tremendous. And it's just another lens into who we are and how we move human design and all these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's no one size fits all. And I always like to say, you know, find the guru in you, but also find the teachers and the teachings that can help you. And, you know, it's, it's a self-initiation process where you have to create the experience and create the container in yourself where you can allow these lessons to come in and make an impact. But it's also okay to seek out others who have more advanced wisdom than you and to allow yourself to be influenced by that. And I think the Akashic records are that for me. It's like, all right, guys, show me what you got. Yeah. It's very, uh, as personal as it is, it's almost like impersonal is not the right word, but it's just there. Mm -hmm. And there's such a, for, for me in my experience, there's such a truth to it that it's undeniable. And, you know, as Del and I were talking, like just getting out of that, that monkey brain and letting the soul come through through the records it's just it's just uh kind of the shoulders drop and you feel like you can work with what comes through yeah it holds you mm. it's like there's something just innately about the energy of the akashic records where it's just like ah uh, it's okay something bigger than me something greater than me has me and we were just talking about this before we came to the panel about how important it is to be connected to something greater than you. And it's not that the Akashic records are like, you know, the, the almighty God or anything, but it's a piece of it. It's a piece of the intelligence that unites us all. And so I think when I'm in the records, I feel closer to God or feel closer to whatever spirits and angels and guides are guiding me. Mm, Beautiful. So now, this idea of letting go of things to create more capacity, it, it sounds easy on the one hand, but there's also, there is identity wrapped up in the ability to create and do all these things. So what was maybe the hardest thing for you to let go of to create more space? You know, it's interesting. I don't think I focus that much on letting go because I think I'm focused more on what it is that I'm up to and I want to go towards And so I don't think there's as much at least conscious effort towards, all right, I'm going to have to let go of that thing if I want to replace it with this. It's more like, how can I expand and and shape shift and open up and become a greater, you know, container for what it is that I want to bring in? And I think the things that, you know, you need to let go of often just fall away when you're not a good match for it anymore and you've moved into a different space or a different experience. So for me, I don't think I'm necessarily like, well, I'm going to have to let go of, you know, this or that. It's kind of like, what do I just want to embody in this moment? And then what comes to me from that place? Yeah. It's like you were saying earlier, it's following the love and the, the gifts that are presenting. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Mikal. 
Yes. I've been getting to know Mikhail a little bit over the last couple of days, and we were talking a little bit about his acting career. And um, I mean, that's just a small part of many of the things that that you're involved with. And it's an important part of of the work you do. You love acting, and you were sharing with me that you had uh, almost, uh, I don't want to say there was tension, but you had done a few things around directing different things that maybe weren't exactly a hell yes. And they've led you down this path of, as you said, becoming the painter with the canvas versus just this one bright shining color. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit about that story. Yeah. So, so for me, um, it was, the whole thing has been kind of an amalgam of all of these seemingly disjointed talents, right? Um, you know, all throughout my life, I, I, I was always into art. I was always into music. I was always into, you know, performing musical theater. I was a Glee Club kid. So, oh, so I, I can see that. Hot pink vest, 100%. top hat. You know, um, got bullied a lot. As a result, you know, I wasn't what you kind of think that I would have been as a child. Um, and quack and fight, I was, I was exactly the opposite. I was uh, very much a creative and, um, and didn't kind of, you know, grow into fruition till I was about 19 or so, right? So, so joined the military when I was, um, I have to give a little bit of background here. Please. Um, joined the military when I was in, um, when I was 17, right out of high school, uh, went into bomb squad, uh, disarmed bombs for about nine years and then went into the SEAL teams and became a SEAL for the remainder of a 22 year career. Uh, multiple tours to Iraq, kind of forgot about that glee club kid, Right. Until because of my military experience, I wound up in a very little known production called Transformers 3. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, but because of my military experience, not because I was looking as an actor or anything like that, it's because, hey, you're a SEAL, you look good carrying a gun. We want you to be a Coke can in the background, you know? And I was like, okay, sounds like fun. Let's go do that. Right. Get there and um, is it okay? Like go into this story a little bit. Go as deep as you want, brother. <laughs> All right. So it's kind of funny. So so um, I'm sitting there and you got to understand. I look completely different too. I had a shaved head. I was 248 pounds. Had this big rocket launcher on my back, a grenade launcher in front, and I'm sitting there and I got like this big mustache, no beard. It was just like this big mustache. Um, and Michael Bay this is the first day of production. Michael Bay comes on set and he's like, he walks by me and he goes, holy shit. What do they call you? And I'm like, hooch. And he goes, fucking perfect. He goes, he goes, do you want to be an actor? I go, yes, sir. And he goes, okay, come here. And he's like, wait a minute, can you act? And I was like, you're the fucking director. Aren't you supposed to be the judge of that? And he's like, we're going to get along just fine. All right. So. I want you to come up here and I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, but it's where like the, the skyscrapers falling down and stuff like this. And he goes, what I want you to do. And they had this, the set was this, they, they did like a whole skyscraper floor on a gimbal. So it would lift up this whole skyscraper floor would lift up. And then like, you'd run down the thing. And, um, and he goes, okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to run down there, lean out the window and say, the building's teetering. And I'm like, 
okay. So I go up and I remember I was sitting there. I, was, I remember I was sitting there and, and I was like, buildings teetering, buildings teetering, teetering. Who the fuck says teetering? <laughs> buildings teetering. And he goes, action. And I run down and I sprint down this thing and I'm like, the building's tiltering. <laughs> fuck. And he goes, you can't say fuck. It's a kid's show. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, ah. He goes, okay, cut, you know, go back up there. And, and now I'm like, I'm in this, I'm in this state where like I start sweating and I'm like, what the hell is going on? I don't know what's going on. I'm like, man, it's hard to breathe. Whew, shit. I feel like I'm being choked out. Right. Everybody's like looking at me and I'm like, what it was happening was I was, remembering that glee club kid that this was all I ever wanted. And I was just like, holy shit. And I start, I start tearing up and I'm like, he's like action. And I'm like, fuck. And I, I fucking run down there and I just like, I forgot the fucking lines again. He's like, I'm, I'm looking out the fucking window with all this shit. And he's like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. Now look over here. Now look over there. Now look over your shoulder and say they're shooting at the building. And I was like, they're shooting at the building. And he's like, cut. That was fucking awesome. You know, and, and I'm just like, kind of like, what happened? <laughs> right? And, and so that kind of started everything. He was like, hey, they, they made me um, a principal in the film. Um, went on to do Transformers 4. You know, talked to my wife. I was like, hey, they're telling me that I might maybe I should pursue this acting thing. And she's like, okay, uh, let's go do it. You know, this was, this was back in 2010. Uh, I got out in 2012. And, and so we went up to LA and I've had, you know, some pretty good stuff. You know, there's been some TV shows that have good runs on and stuff like that. But I got approached to, to be, a uh, tech advisor, and which I really did not like at the time. is like, I got so much more to offer than just showing people how to hold a gun. You know what I mean? But that's all they could see was the seal. And so I was really resistant to it. And now getting back to answering your question. I was really resistant to, to like doing any of that because I was like, if I'm doing that, that's what I'm going to wind up doing. They're like, well, they got this TV show with Ann Hesch and Mike Vogel called The Brave. And it's NBC and they want you to be the advisor and teach them how to look good. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. No, that's, I, I want to act. Like, I, this is what I want to do. And they go, well, at least talk to the guy. Dean George Harris was the showrunner. He's one of the writers on like Gladiator and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I like that movie. I'll, I'll go meet that dude. <laughs> so, so I have a talk with him and he's genuinely like, like we just want it to be right. You know, it's important. Like, and you'll have all this type of, you know, and to their credit, they, they gave me a lot of credit. But when I got there and this is the critical piece here that took a little bit to get to is, is I was, I was working. I hit it off with the production director a guy that oversees all the directors that come in for TV, you get different directors and stuff like that. They come in on every episode and we started developing a really good relationship. I felt like I could go, Hey man, you know, if you put the camera like right here, we'd catch this and that, 
And it would look like this. And he's like, all right, let's do that. You know? And, and it only took like two of those to where he's like, dude, you ever thought about being a director? <laughs> and I was like, uh, well, I made a short, you know, like, you want to see it? And he's like, yeah. And it was like no budget. And it was, a it was my story. It's, it's, it's on YouTube. Um, you can check it out. What's it called? Uh, it's called message in a bottle and it's about how pharmaceuticals almost killed me. <laughs> so, so, um, artistic representation of my journey to find found vital warrior nonprofit that I use Kundalini yoga to help service members find that replicate the path basically. Um, and so I showed it to him next morning. He called, like wakes me up and uh, he's like, this was the first thing you ever did. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, dude, we're going to start developing you as a director. And he goes, that was fucking amazing. And, and I go, great. And fucking go back to sleep. You know, I mean, get up. And I was like, did that happen? I, I talked to him. I, Is that, that, did that happen? You know? And so more and more, they started putting me in that seat. And what I started to realize was, um, and I got to direct a couple of little things on there. I was going to direct the second unit in the finale and then the show got canceled. They didn't do second unit. I was like, no, that stung. That stung. But what it taught me was this, is that, and this is the key piece, this is the takeaway, is that sitting in that seat, I realized that the art, the music, the action, even my experience as a SEAL in this particular genre, all of it was, and this is my experience, this is my take on it, was absolutely critical for me to step into that role as a director. Like I'd been doing it like forever. I understood what everybody was talking about. You know, I knew what composition looked like. I knew what the sound would be. I knew how to hold tension in a story, you know, and it's, and so when, when, when they, you fast forward a little bit, that they come up from Activision, Activision's a video game company, and they go, hey, we want you to be a tech advisor for one of our, our games called Call of Duty. I was like, yep, let's go, <laughs> right? Because, because it, was, it was all about, okay, this and you got to understand there's a, whole other, there's a whole other side to this that, that is very profound. Um, but through the spiritual progression, it was directly proportional to the awareness that I was developing that of the pieces that are coming in that might not be on my radar and that I need to just say, yeah, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not an actor, but wait a minute. Now it's like, okay, now I have this perspective of, okay, when you're the actor, you think that that's the whole show. Yeah. You want to be, it's more like, and this is what I was saying last night is, is being an actor is like, you're the paint, but the director is the artist. You know what I mean? There's a lot of pe people that go into that and that behind the scenes, but the director is the holds the vision of the painting. And as an actor, you want to be a vibrant color. You don't want to be muddy. You know, you want to be a vibrant color to add to that, but it completely shifted my perspective and, and there was a greater understanding that, wow, as a director, 
I can influence the narrative to the point that I can propagate the, the truth of all, you know, through these stories. And that's why the only stories that I'm truly interested in telling as a director are the ones that are about the propagation of love. What we'll do to protect it. What we'll do if we've lost it. What we'll do to get it and experience it. Like all the great movies, that's what they're about, right? Like aliens, what is that story about? It's about that woman's love for that little girl and she go down into the bowels of hell battling demons to rescue it and protect it, right? What's Gladiator about, right? And love is synonymous with God in my experience of it like unconditional love, the, the selfless service towards that light is all for me. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's one. <laughs> yes. And I'd love for you to just share the, the piece that uh, the conversation you had with the, the person about the two guys up in Canada on zoom and how you parlayed that. Ooh. Can you yes. do that? Is that, Yes, I can absolutely do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I got a chuckle out of that one. Okay. So, so th this is a Call of Duty story. It's a little more amplification of the Call of Duty kind of through line here. And um, so they asked me to, they go, hey, this is when COVID hit. So, so they asked me to be an advisor and then COVID hit and they were like, hey, um, We've got these guys on lockdown together at a motion capture studio in Canada. And they were like, we'd like for you to get on Zoom and direct them. We have this thing in game where if you hit the melee button so that you do like a butt strike, if you hold it down, it will perform a four second execution where it's a little animation to where it kills the other player. And I'm like, okay. Cool. And they show me this kind of thing. Here's what we've got going on. And I'm like, um, this isn't going to work but in this because it's a two dimensional thing. And I'm going to be trying to tell them in a three dimensional space, what arm they're going to have to move where. And like, I was like, what if we do this? What if I could put a team together and with that team, I can come up with some ideas and We'll put it on tape and they can perform, they can practice that and I can give notes on that. And they go, oh, that's a great idea. Cool, let's do that. I go over to my team and I'm like, all right, guys, we gotta make this shit so badass they can't perform it. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, Roger that, let's fucking do it. <laughs> so, so, we did. And we put together this whole reel. We put gunshots in it and like all this stuff in there. And Activision's like, um, all right, hold on a minute. Yeah. Hey, do you want a job? And, and, and it's like, what's the job? And they go, well, we, we need you to make us 300 of these things and direct them for us. And I was like, let, let me make sure I understand the ask here. You want me to come up with 300 ways to kill somebody up close and you're going to pay me to do it? 
And they go, yeah. And I go, I'm in. <laughs> and so that's, that's how it started. And, and again, this is, this was all because I showed up, right? Like this is going back to that. And, and through that process, there's been tremendous growth, like uh, across the board and, and experience and, you know, Treyarch is the company that I'm with, um, has been fantastic. And should I go further? hundred percent. Okay. Okay. Here we go. <sighs> okay. So, so this is how God works in my life. And this is how, this is going to be very challenging for me to do here. Um, when I, I believe that there's always, and since we're on this subject, there's an inciting incident, right? That God gives us the wall that you so eloquently put. And for me, the wall is more of a, um, the wall that you run into is, in this particular instance, is one that, um, it's like an, <laughs> it's, a, it's a wall that's constantly pushing me. It's a moving wall. And it's pushing me in the right direction to where I can't see any other way to go anymore. There's like, so, so just piggybacking, piggybacking on that analogy. It, um, there's no coincidence in life and, and we can use it as, um, mile markers. And so the biggest thing for me was, um, and there's a much larger story here that expands the boundaries of what we have time for. But uh, long story short is that my son and I um, shared this IP. Like I'd play Call of Duty with him and he was like a prodigy at this thing. He was amazing at it. And, um, and he was horribly abused when he was a child by his mother. I had to take emergency custody of him and we went across country and long story there. And, um, and so, so as he was processing all of that, what he had gone through in his journey, my, my, the only way I could get through to him sometimes was through that medium, right? Through that video game. We don't see the beauty of that enough of what those video games can do. And so in that virtual world, we could connect and we'd have experiences and it would be fun. We'd be laughing, you know, stuff that we couldn't do in person. A lot of times I'm recovering from combat. He's recovering from, you know, his childhood events. Well, invariably he succumbed to those events. And he passed away in 2020. And what I experienced in the energy, <laughs> you can feel that. It's the why. And what I realized through this whole Call of Duty thing was because it happened after he passed away. Like I got the job after and then got hired to direct <laughs> hitting the nail on the head here. Um, 
a game called Diablo four. And that's a story of, of, you know, angels versus demons over the control of humanity, you know, and it's, and it's, and that's been kind of that moving wall that anytime there's no, (laughs) when something, when you're given what I call the blessing of pain, it's a, it's a, it was just, there was a revealing of the whole sacrifice of the son to, to articulate the glory of God as a personal experience. And so that's where all the shift in me came. That's where all of this service, like it's all in service to that source of creativity to that, like finding love in within myself at any given moment, like being able to tap into it and then express and serve it through sound, through art, through directing, through story, through every breath, every movement, as much as I possibly can. That's why oftentimes you see me sitting somewhere. I'm just like, that guy's kind of weird. You know what I mean? Because I'm just connecting to that as much as I possibly can. So when we, when we serve whatever it is we're doing in life, whatever, I don't care if you're basket weaving, whatever way or knife making or making barrels or guns or whatever it is you're doing, if, if you can find that, truth within yourself and just serve that truth in what it is you're doing right now and truly serving that with no ulterior motive, then things just fall in your lap. You're coasting, you're aerodynamic. You're like, it doesn't matter. There's no attachment to to an outcome of something. So there's no anxiety. There's no, there's nothing but unconditional love. You know, and then when like you do feel anxiety, it becomes a blessing of a reminder that like, hey, get back on track. Here's how you do it, you know, through whatever practice it is that you do. And then you get back to center and you start going again. And that's like that that whole thing just becomes, you know, the light, the dark, that just becomes the contrast that paints the painting. And it's absolutely critical. Uh, at least for me and um and everything's gone great and and <laughs> freaking Lionsgate contacted me while I was here and it was like hey we want you to second unit direct this story about a seal that finds god and i'm like it's a little on the nose isn't it <laughs> you know i'm like okay let's go you know what i mean and it's like okay Let's, uh, let's do that. And if it happens, great. If it's not, then okay, that's whatever, you know, it's a part of the journey, part of the story, you know? So, um, thanks for letting me share that. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. And, and, uh, yeah, just that concept of going without knowing, but just trusting that, whether it's your intuition, your gut, your, your inner knowing, and just as we were talking about earlier, just surrendering to it. 
Yeah, beautiful. Um, let's pass the mic to Jared. I mean, I guess it's, you know. Are we done? <laughs> <laughs> so we have the Kirtan at four. I hope you guys enjoyed the panel. Yeah, so, so you know, Jared has been uh, help, uh, helping produce the event this week. Jared and I have a really close relationship. He's been an incredible advisor to me through as I've mentioned, some really challenging times and really, really helped me be able to sit in the seat that I needed to sit. Um, so just want to honor that and express my gratitude, brother. Uh, but Jared's had, um, he's had quite an interesting run lately. Uh, and I'll kind of let him get into it. You guys, a lot of you had enjoyed his Be Here Farm in Nature, whether it's the face mask or the, the uh, summer solstice serum. Two products that I absolutely love. Um, and I understand Mikal and he he dipped his toe into well, not literally his toe, but into the face serum. And he's fucking beaming. Am, am I wrong? <laughs> but there's a there's a much greater story behind you know, kind of where Jared's at today and the, and the things he's doing. I'd love for you just to share what that journey has been like for you. I will try my best, but I feel really close to it, you know? So sometimes I don't really even know what's the most interesting part about it, but I'll leave that for you guys to figure out um, and just share what, what I recall. Um, I was like my family, my brother and my father, long successful careers on Wall Street. And so I was definitely kind of born into that track and not knowing what I wanted to do in life. I just kind of came out of college and fell into an internship, a summer internship on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, And that turned into a several year job and promotions and doing good at doing well at work. Um, But I just had absolutely no vision at all. Like I was like, oh, I guess I'll be a hedge fund guy one day. I'll be a trader at a hedge fund. But I just had no idea really why or what or how I would even get there. And I didn't even feel like I had the skill set to do what I was doing. I was terrible at math. Um, and, you know, somehow through this process of standing in front of six screens with a phone. I had a partner who was in the, like, if you, you've seen it on TV, like the hand signals and all that stuff in the stock exchange, they don't do that anymore. Um, they just have a little iPad basically. And so my partner who I used to would have do this too, right? He's in the crowd and I was on the phone with him all day long, 7am. He'd call me in his pocket, put the phone in his pocket and we'd be on one year, the phone all day long. And then on the other year I'd pick up our customers and I'd take orders. And so I was listening to both ears at the same time. And still to this day, if I have one earphone in, I can't hear what anyone else is saying. If I have the other one in, I could talk to you and listen to a podcast or anything at the same time. It's really kind of weird. Um, but I've, I, I met a, what's called a Czech practitioner, which is a student of Paul Czech and the Czech Institute. And you can look him up if you're interested in more. Um, and really one of the concepts that struck was what's called the dream line. And the dream line, I mean, it's it's exactly what it sounds. You have to have a dream. Most people don't have a dream that they've identified that this is my dream. Um, And so the dream line is like if you had a bullseye on the wall and you're a bow and arrow, you're an archer and you shoot a bow and arrow at the dream line, it's the line in between you and the bullseye. And so you have to come up with values around your life so that you can stay on your dream line. 
And in his system, the values around diet, quiet, movement, and happiness. Um, and your dream has to be bigger than what you're most afraid of, because we've been talking about love a bit. And, you know, to, to quote Paul, you'll, you'll crawl across broken glass in the desert for someone that you love, but people will smoke cigarettes through a hole in their neck. So the fear of death even is not enough to, to get you to change your ways sometimes. So you can't really, you can't really rely on fear too much to be that wall to, to drive the change, but love can really drive a lot of change. Um, and so my dream, um, through, through this meeting of the Czech practitioner, I learned for the first time about organic food. You know, I was raised on like snack wells and egg beaters and stuff like that. Um, so I learned about organic food, movement, mindfulness, um, and, you know, trying to like just go inwards a little bit and that, you know, I'm going to just fast forward now, but that resulted in ultimately quitting my job on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and taking an unpaid farming apprenticeship in rural Georgia on a biodynamic farm. And um, the year after that, our vision for, you know, what basically nature connection is what came out of that. I didn't even know why I was enjoying farming so much, but it was the first time I had been really in a direct relationship with mother earth. Um, I grew up in the suburbs playing video games that guys like McCall were directing and, um, you know, I just never really got outside except to play sports, uh, like, you know, organized sports. I never went on a hike, you know, anything like that. Um, and so farming, and in particular, this one time I was getting a tour of a, a farm that I ended up renting the next year and managing myself with, along with my wife. Um, and there's a type of cucumber called Suyo Long Cucumbers. They're super long, like a little spiky cucumber. And he walked by one and he goes, oh, look at this perfect straight one. And uh, he was just so happy about the way the cucumber looked. And I was like, all right, cool. Okay. I locked it in my head. I'm like, perfect straight. Okay. That's a perfect Suyo Long. And then he took three steps and he goes, oh, look at this perfect curly one. And I was just like, this shit is for me. Um, I was just totally in on farming at that point. Um, and so. <laughs> which ones are better? They're, they're, yes, both. <laughs> which was the name of my college uh, softball team. Yes, both. Yeah. Um, and so. <laughs> We, uh, my wife and I over the years started to really crystallize this vision. In particular, we got inspired by what you call agriturismos in Italy, which is like a farm based sort of hospitality, um, family owned business. Um, and so we moved, you know, I'm just skipping through the years now, but we ended up in California, um, through family investment, we've raised a large sum of money and purchased 300 acres on Spring Mountain, which is a famous uh, wine growing mountain in the Napa Sonoma uh, area. And, you know, one of the greatest accomplishments of my professional life to date has been achieving the permits to develop that project, which was 37,000 square feet of new construction, nine cottages, a spa, restaurant, nature trails, miles of roads, all in the Napa Ag Preserve, which you're not allowed to do stuff like that in. So we had to go through public hearings, multiple public hearings, um, thousands and thousands of hours and millions of dollars, to be totally honest. Um, ultimately culminating with about 10 years later of working on that project, 18 hours a day and dreaming about it the, the remainder of the day. Um, 
the whole thing burned down in uh, pretty devastating wildfires in 2020 uh, called the Glass Fire. It burned down the whole mountain, actually, and thousands of acres in every direction around it. Um, so we left um, with our daughter and our two dogs. The one dog died a few days later just from the stress of the whole situation. Um, we left and went down to, uh, she was five at the time. And, um, maybe if we have time, we'll do an interesting callback to the summer solstice serum and the fire and how that all came to be. But we, um, we left and I knew that my girls felt really safe in this one vacation house that we had rented once or twice down in the Malibu area. And we had actually booked it for Thanksgiving that year. So it was now September 27th. And I called that lady and I asked her if we could just go down there for the next month or a month and a half. And we came up with like a, a, a deal with her. And so we moved down to, to Malibu and that started about 18 months of displacement. You know, we first thought like, well, we didn't even know what was going on. You can't get back into a fire zone for quite a while. And um, you're just sitting there hoping that everything's fine. You know, you watch the fire map grow and the map and then all of a sudden your property's close to it. And then all of a sudden your property's in it. And then it's just way beyond your property. These things don't update in real time. So like all of a sudden the next day you just wake up and you're like, my God, um, this thing tripled in size and it's not stopping. Um, so we, you know, I had spent thousands of, of hours on this, an entire decade. It was a third of my life at that time. Um, so I expected that to be just, you know, tragedy upon tra like only tragedy. But the first feeling that I had as my wife was driving in the car in front of me with my daughter and I was in our family RV with my two dogs um, going off the mountain with fire on in every direction. Frankly, there's two roads off this mountain and we lived at the top of it. And when we were heading down our road, there's firefighters already coming up. And one guy's like, go right. He probably said, go to St. Helena. He's like, go right. And then we got halfway down the road, another half mile. And we passed another fire truck. He's like, go left. And we're like, the last guy said, go right. He's like, I just came from there. Don't go that. I wouldn't go that way. And then the guy at the bottom also gave us a left and we went left 50 or hundred first responders are, are flying against, you know, us evacuating into this situation. And I just remember thinking like, I was shockingly happy about the situation. I was relieved and I was happy. And I knew that it was like, everything was going to be fine and that we were safe. I was like screaming out the window for the first responders. I was like, go get them boys. Like, woo. I thought like obviously heroes, you know, I just couldn't believe it. And I, I wish I had been with my wife and daughter cause they were not in the same vibes in their car. But, um, basically that feeling of relief really messed with me. Um, because I just, there were so many difficult things leading up to that fire that I didn't stop developing the project at the fire meant that we were no longer developing the project up until that point, you know, every single thing that ever happened on that project was incredibly difficult to accomplish, including family, you know, issues of raising money and then dealing with my, my family members and, and all that stuff. It was, it was, you know, it was very difficult and 
arguments with neighbors, the county, just environmental reviews. It's in, it's in California. So this is like the black belt of developing, you know, pro- projects like this. You'd go to Texas. They're just like, you got a septic field. That's the whole process, you know, <laughs> so, which is where we now live. So that period of displacement um, bounced us around and we landed in Texas. Um, and so I think the part of the story that I, I kind of want to touch on is two things. One is what Cal said just about our relationship, because I don't think he realizes exactly how pivotal it was for me. Um, and then also the dream line. So my dream for sure was, you know, to have a life where my family could live in nature and be creative with nature and to share that with people because it had already been transformative for us. So at this point I'd gone from 260 pounds to like 220 pounds or so. And I was no longer recreationally doing cocaine and drinking alcohol and my whole life had sort of changed. Um, and I really wanted to share that with people. I wanted to figure out a, a way of life where I could, I just thought if, if only everybody knew how good it is to switch from cocaine to biodynamic vegetables, like <laughs> we could all be doing this. Um, so I knew I wanted to come up with a, a path that allowed me to do that. What's really weird is that somewhere along the line, and it had to do with the amount of money that was raised is really what I think the dream switched on the ground to developing the world's best hotel. And that dream might exist in this room. You know, this is a pretty crazy place. Um, and I wish them all the best, but for us, that marching order led to, you know, me, uh, having 17 employees on the property, all of them, you know, 20 or five years older than me with a lot of experience in their fields. And so I had a very steep learning curve. It's the type of job developing a hotel like that in California in particular is the type of job that entire companies do. And I was just doing it with my wife who then got pregnant and immediately I was doing it by myself. Um, so the dream line, you know, when I was in that RV, I, I just remembered what my dream was. My dream wasn't to develop the best hotel in the world. It got twisted somewhere along the way. And, um, And that dream was burning down like to the left and the right of me in both windows. And I just knew I had this second lease on life in a way. Um, And I I would have been for the next 75 years. I mean, there's literally fire outside the windows. And I was like, ha, it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like (laughs) what? Um, And then relief, a lot of relief, which like quickly turned to depression because I was just so confused why I was so relieved and happy for it all to burn down like that after single-mindedly dedicating my entire last third of my life to it. Not to mention putting relationships and everything, you know, at risk. And I didn't make a single friend during that decade. I was just sharing this story with Ben. I barely left the property. I had 300 acres and a biodynamic farm. My wife would get the groceries and take Kaya to school. And I worked 18 hours a day, which included, you know, walk. all I had to do was walk outside and I was in the middle of 300 acres. So I could just go be deep in nature and not see another person, not see a house, a car. It was, it was in a way, you know, heaven. Um, but basically, you know, 
it allowed me to remember what my dream was. It had nothing to do with a hotel. You know, it was about being on that farm and being out in nature and just living a healthy, a healthy life and not living in New York city. Like there was so much wrong with why I wanted to leave New York city in the first place. So it was obviously about living a life that was antithetical to that as well. Um, and so the depression, I think, you know, there were two things. One, I just kind of eventually confessed to my brother that I was really cloudy headed. I just, I couldn't, um, I just felt like the hotel was done and I don't have a source of revenue. And I've just spent most of our life savings getting through this displacement period. And I have a wife and daughter who have high standards of life too. They, as my wife likes to just say, she's a luxury traveler. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, the hotel was expected uh, to bring in a lot of money annually. And so we were burning through our savings even during that period, knowing that of course the hotel was going to open and be bringing in seven figures annually. We knew that for sure. We, and we acted as such, you know? Um, and so I just told my brother that I just feel like I need to be complete. And Eb's kind of been, Eb's been sharing some of this stuff uh, on his social media recently about a period of time when he just finally listened to the signs of like, I need to rest and not go after things. You know, I need to just take a period of time off basically. And so I was feeling like I should be somehow manifesting new streams of revenue. Like what's our business going to be? I certainly didn't want to go have a nine to five job after the last decade of dream weaving like that. And so my brother basically just encouraged me to lean into the cloudiness. He's like, "Eh, maybe it's fine. Just kind of lean into it. So I just put the phone down. I sat down, I read a book. I went outside for a slow walk and I was like cured. I was just like, okay, yeah, I'm going to lean into the cloudiness. This is fine. I'll just see what the clouds are about for, for a period of time. It didn't last very long because shortly after I met Cal, who I guess I knew him from through mutual friends on Instagram, but come on. I saw it. Eben had a book, uh, a pod, like a live podcast in Austin and I had already known Eb. And so I went to just go for fun and Cal was in the audience and I kind of recognized him from Instagram and that's how we met. I just went up to him and said, Hey, you know, I think we probably have a lot in common based on our, how many friends we share. (laughs) You want to, you want to go for a hike sometime? And he was like, yeah, let's calendar it. Granted, I was dressed in a super fly outfit. Well, he was. 100%. So I probably thought I was interesting. But I was in a cow jacket. Yeah, it's like, it like, I look like it. it was like a cow costume, but kind of fashionable. Um, and uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Underwater cow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if only I had my manatee costume. Um, but I... I said to Cal, like, let's go for a hike. We went for a hike. I, I don't even know, you know, like a, a week or two went by where all of a sudden Cal was in the middle of writing a book at that time, which is going to be a New York times bestseller releasing in the next year or so. And, um, it called trading options. Keep your eyes up for it. Um, and he had, as you referred to a lot of other things going on in his life, including like some interesting real estate, um, situations and even an idea of developing kind of a commercial project where, uh, this beautiful house they have might be good for events or anything like that. And so he actually hired me and I was just like, you know, I put up a good face, like, you know, I talk a good talk, but in my head, I was just like, I just felt like, like this guy was seeing me in a way that like, I didn't even see myself in, you know? 
And even the things he just said to me, I mean, like, I look up to him and he's saying I'm his advisor, you know? So like that, that trips me out a little bit. Um, but I, you know, I hear it, you know, I've re- I'm okay receiving that and I appreciate it. Um, but that is sort of where my life ended up. I, I started working for Cal, um, which was a, a few months of, um, diving into his life. And as a part of that, you know, I had recalled back to Cal being at B-Fest or maybe it was like happening at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It was this past summer. So Cal was at B-Fest and I thought that's a great looking retreat. I mean, like everything, everything looks so beautiful. And so I asked Cal to put me in touch with Vanessa and Adam. And I called them because I wanted a, to recommend Eben as a facilitator. Um, and, uh, I'm just looking at Chris because Chris is like, wait, what happened to me? Because I also, re- I, I also did ultimately recommend Chris, but Evan and I were engaged in a variety of different business partnerships at that time and still ongoing. And so it was like front of mind. I wanted to call him about Eb and I wanted to call him about our products and um, to see if they could be like an amenity here in some way. And by the end of that phone call, Vanessa was like, I want you on the team. Like, I want to have these conversations all the time. And I was like, all right, let's set a second phone call. And then that was it. You know, I've been working with her and Adam for the last six months and we're probably going to continue, you know, talk in a day or two probably, but pretty, f- pretty focused on I this I think event. now we're best friends. <laughs> Dude, you, you left that part out. Yeah, I did. I'm so sorry. It always slips my mind. But um, it's just so, so weird to me. Like now I'm wondering like, wait, what is my kismet relationship with McCall and Dell? Because the four of the four people on this panel are just really entangled in a, in a pretty interesting way. As far as this, I didn't mean the story to even involve them. I was thinking about my story, but they're definitely a part of my story. And so, yeah, that's really where we've ended up now is that, like I said, I'm so close to it that I don't really have so much clarity, but the, uh, the dreamline, the losing sight of it, and then the, the leaning into the cloudiness when it came up and then the, the sort of, I guess that's where the, the surrender probably came in for me is that I recognized that the dream, I reconnected with my dream and I recognized that the dream doesn't have anything to do with that property as much as I love it. You know, in fact, putting physical boundaries like that property on my dream was rather constricting on the dream. And now the dream is here in Mexico and the dream is being shipped all around the world and our products and the dream is doing all sorts of stuff. And so the dream is alive and well. People will always say to me like, oh my God, like that was your dream, like this and that. And I understand what they're saying, but it's really not true. You know, that wasn't my dream. The dream didn't burn down. The property burned down. And our dream is about nature connection, really at its essence. And that's just what I want to, you know, learn and, and do and share. And so uh, I think I'm talking for a while and that's what came to me. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to talk about what you mentioned, Jared, and just how, um, I mean, we can touch on your NFL career a little bit and what that was like and the identity maybe wrapped up in that. And then as you stepped into this new phase of evolving and still found yourself back in this striving, achieving, gotta go, 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 and what it was that shifted you from that. First of all, I just want to say thank you guys so much. Vanessa, thank you for this incredible experience. And Dell, 
I mean, I was ready to go to war, dude, after your talk. And I, you know, I'm glad that this conversation has gone in another direction because my Viking ancestors are roaring from Valhalla, like ready to blood eagle all the politicians that <laughs> fucking are allowing all of this insanity. So I'm glad we, we went another way with this talk. And uh, Mikhail, like... So it's incredible to hear you share, man. And thank you so much for that and your vulnerability. And just, uh, I mean, I'm fucking bursting into tears and maybe I'll just spend the next couple minutes crying. Um, Thank you. Uh, and thank you guys. Um, you know, it's funny. It's so funny, Cal, you asked me that. We've, uh, I've had the blessing of connecting with Cal. And the moment I met him, I was like, this is like my soul uncle or something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, this guy's my family. And, um, you know, we've had a, we've done a couple pods and Cal knows my story pretty well. And, Getting to know Cal and his family has been just such a pleasure. And, <clears throat> you know, my whole football career was really about proving to the world how big and scary and to be feared I was. Um, and I come from this family that is heavily affected by the disease of alcoholism, depression, anxiety, self-worth issues, um, self-loathing, <sighs> not really understanding what love is. And, um, that fueled my entire athletic career. I was always the most violent player on the field. That's how I made it to the NFL. Like you turn on the film and there's Ebb running 50 yards down the field with the running back, taking guys over the pile you know, my rookie year, I almost like ended a hall of famers career by coming behind him and taking out his knee. You know, that was just who I was. And everybody's like, Ev, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't fucking know. I'm just like, I'm, I'm here to play. I'm here to take souls, you know, essentially. And, uh, I destroyed myself in the process of proving to the world how big and scary I was. Completely. And I left my football career mentally, emotionally, and physically destroyed. I had back surgery. I had shoulder surgery. I had, you know, I ruptured a disc in my low back, L5S1. Um, had, you know, my, my experience, uh, the, the NFL is just a complete pharmaceutical pill mill. Every guy in an NFL locker room, 98% of guys in an NFL locker room are on a daily regimen of prescription anti-inflammatories like Cataflam, Indocin, Celebrex, things that wreak havoc on your insides, your digestive system, your liver, your kidneys. I mean, guys who, I'm 35, guys, when I was younger, I'd hear stories of guys in their mid-30s having, you know, kidney failure, liver damage, you know, all sorts of issues needing to have intestines taken out because of their daily use of these things. And it's just like, you're just taking it to sit in the chair to watch film to get through the day. 
And not to mention all the opiates. That's just like the icing on the cake, you know. And the older you get in your career, that's just what you do, you know. I remember my rookie year, first preseason game. And uh, this old vet comes up to me. He's like, Eb, you get your T-train yet? Get on the T-train yet? I'm like, what's the T-train? It's like, oh, follow me. We walk into the training room. And there's a line of guys going into the doctor's office to get their Toradol shot. And uh, I don't know, maybe you know, you're familiar with Toradol. Toradol is just like, I mean, it's like, you know, nectar of the gods for football players. You, exactly. And uh, it just takes all the pain away, makes you feel like you could run through a brick wall. And we would call it the T-train because the next day you wake up, you feel like you were hit by a train. Um, you know, and then all the things that come through that, the self-medication of whatever you can find, alcohol, pills, drugs, et cetera, just to numb the pain, just to get through it through the day. Um, so I came out of my football career mentally, emotionally, physically destroyed. And, uh, it was this slow descent because similar and different to Jared's story. When I came out of football, there was this immense feeling of relief. I think most guys who play pro football, football in particular at any level, there's always this thing in the back of your mind. When are we going to be done? When am I going to be done? You know, and for me, I was from the time I was eight years old, I had this vision of playing in the NFL. So it wasn't at least for me until I made it there. Um, and then I made it there and there was still this hole in my heart, this God sized hole. I was like, wait, I did it. I did this thing that I've set out to achieve from the time I was a little kid and I'm still not there yet. I'm not fulfilled. And I started as a rookie, uh, you know, had an incredible rookie season next year going into the second, uh, into my second season, I had this severe rupturing of my disc which sent severe sciatic nerve damage down my right leg. Played through that for half a season before dislocating my shoulder twice against the Chiefs. Popped it back in the first time. Got a shoulder harness put on. We go back out for this two-minute drill. I'm blocking Mike Vrabel, who's the head coach of the Titans. Pops out again. This time I can't get it back in because of the harness. So it took team doctors like five minutes to get it back into the socket. And still, I was like, oh, I'll be ready for next week against Dallas. And it took the team doctor to say, Eb, I got to shut you down. You have to have season-ending shoulder surgery. So I had the shoulder surgery. Back was still fucked up. Came back. It was the lockout. Ended up having back surgery. Come back from the back surgery. And I don't know how I end up going into my whole fucking injury <laughs> history. I suppose it sets us up for where, where I, I was yesterday. Um, but come back from back surgery, playing the best football of my life. It was having the back surgery was like somebody pulled the piece of glass out of the electrical system of my body. Sciatic nerve pain gone. I was I was in tears. I was so thankful to be free of that pain that I was waking up and I was in that chronic pain for 18 months. 
And that does a lot to your nervous system. You don't realize it, but you're like this waking up every day and just trying to get through your day in complete and utter agony. And so finally to have that removed, it was like waking up in heaven. And 11 weeks after that surgery, though, I've been starting at left guard now. We're going to play the Steelers. I can barely get out of bed because my back is completely spasmed and locked. I'm like, you know what? It's fine. I'll pop the pills. I'll do the stuff. We get to Heinz Field. I get on, get into the training room on the table. My guy's got the heat pack and the Theragun and the stem machine, and he's working it out. And I go after about 45 minutes of treatment, I can barely push myself up off the table because my back is totally seized. I end up not playing that day. A month, it took about a month and three more MRIs to realize that I had an infection in the disc and was put on eight weeks of intravenous antibiotics. Every day a nurse would come to my house and inject me with these antibiotics into a catheter in my arm. And uh, like one day at a time, you know, my legs were barely working. I could get up and walk around my kitchen before my legs went totally out. I'd have to hold myself up over the sink and wash my hands. And just like every day I'd walk as far as I could until my legs fell out, you know, and then I'd like shuffle, crawl my way back home. And finally it was like, then I started working out. Like it took about six months before I could actually work out again, get back in the weight room. And still I had this idea. I'm a fucking warrior. I will die on this field before I quit playing. So came back actually during that back injury, I wake up one day, I turn on the today show. Cause that was my fucking routine. Then <laughs> I haven't watched the today show in about 10 years. Thanks to, you know, all this insanity that's happened or the insanity that the media has revealed itself to participate in. Um, I wake up one day, the team is sold, head coach is fired. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, come back. It's a horrible year. I'm ready to be done. It's my contract year, my fourth year in Jacksonville. I'm ready to be done. Have a conversation. Guys like, dude, give it with a vet who really taught me how to be a pro. Brad Meester, shout out to Brad. Played 14 years for the Jags as a center. He said, Eb, every year I think to myself, I'm fucking done with this. He's like, I just come back, give it one day at a time. Somehow I find my love for it. I find something that I love about this game again. And I end up playing another year. I was like, okay, Brad, I can do that. <laughs> I had no money. You know, I was like, I had come into all this money. And uh, as a rookie, I had more money than anybody in my family had ever had. And I didn't know how to use it. I didn't know how to hold on to that. I was giving it to everybody, taking care of everybody I knew, you know, steak dinners, flights, come to the game, do, you know, whatever it was, whatever you needed, businesses, all that stuff. So I was like, well, I basically need to keep playing. So I ended up getting another couple of years in, in Chicago, had one really great year. The second year it was the business of football reared its ugly head again. I was fucking over it. And, um, I, I just seen it. I, there was another, a handful of other insane things that you can listen to on some other podcasts I've done. Um, 
but basically the light was there and I got that message from God saying, Eb, it's okay to be dumb. You know, it's okay to be dumb. Um, and so bears said they weren't going to sign me, decided to move my family back to LA. We bought a house, did that. And, uh, you know, initially it was this feeling of relief. Like I gave it everything I had. The wheels were off the wagon completely. I had calls from the Falcons and the bills and these teams. And they're like, yeah, we wanted to fly you in and work you out and do this. And, uh, I thought to myself, I can't even go to the airport. I can't get to the airport to take that flight, to do that workout. I'm over it. I'm done. I knew it in my heart. And that was a good, that was a good feeling because a lot of guys don't get that. You know, and I had had that experience my last year in Chicago. I got cut after training camp, after preseason, and then they signed me back a week later, the fuckers. Uh, but, you know, a lot of guys, they get cut, walk out of that building, a box of their shit, bottle, a few bottles of pills in their hands, and it's like, see you later, have a good life. You know, if you're lucky to get signed again, that's a blessing. But most guys, you know, that's the end of it. So I was really lucky to come to that place where it was so, it was so inevitable and obvious in my heart that I was done playing football. So initially it was relief. It was like, wow, here we are. We made it. We made it through that tunnel. And like, now what? Now what? Whoa. And I just bought this house. We had a uh, just enough money to get us about a year so that we could figure it out so that we could start making, I'm getting the music to... <laughs> Wrap it up. It's like the Oscars. <laughs> Wrap it up, man. <laughs> Wrap it. Real quick. It is a good point to let people know if they're really attached to the Kirtan, it's starting in a few minutes and we won't be offended. Well, if you have to, if you want to go to the Kirtan, please. Um, but so that experience culminated in a slow descent to rock bottom. This is a jam. <laughs> a slow descent to rock bottom where I watched myself scream into the phone at my wife at the time saying, I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to kill somebody. As I drove on the on-ramp of the 170 out to Chatsworth to this office of this building where I'd started a CBD company. And I very organically fell into cannabis advocacy coming out of football. Cannabis was in many ways the thing that saved my life, saved my life through football. Because when the pills made me feel totally insane, wreaked havoc on my gut, waking up at two, three o'clock in the morning with cold sweats, chills, knifing sensation in my gut, all of this stuff, cannabis was this thing that I very intuitively found healing in. So I was doing this cannabis advocacy, started a CBD company, all this stuff. And so that moment happened. I got a call from my mom by the time I got to the office. And my mom said, Eb, how you doing? I said, could barely speak. I was choked with shame and guilt and shit. And she said, Eb, why don't you come over for dinner? I said, all right, mom. And um, I went over for dinner. Mom said, Eb, this is our family. You know, this is where we come from. We've been... The disease of alcoholism has wreaked havoc on how we live and it creates a lot of unmanageability. And the good news is we've got tools for this stuff. 
And at the time, my brother was going to an all-men's Al-Anon meeting. And uh, Al-Anon, if you're familiar, AA is for alcoholics. Al-Anon is for the even crazier people who are the family of alcoholics. And uh, I was like, I was at such rock bottom that I just surrendered to it. I was like, okay, yeah. And I went to this first Al-Anon meeting. It was all men. I went in there just cloaked in darkness and heaviness, could barely breathe. And this guy starts sharing. He's talking about his life as a child. And it's like he's telling my story. Having to take care of his little brother. Parents coming home drunk and it wasn't a safe situation. And having to be the alpha male at seven and all this stuff. Taking the family, weight of the family on his shoulders as a little kid. And codependence and responsibility for everyone and putting everyone else in front of him. And I just burst into tears. My heart blasted open. It was like the sky parted, light shined down. And I spent the next hour just sobbing, basically. And I left that meeting able to breathe with a little bit of hope in my heart and some faith, restored faith. Like, okay, maybe I can do this thing, you know? And that, that moment, I always, I always highlight that moment because it, it led me on this, this path of going into myself, of learning about, starting to go, oh, there I am. And it led me into therapy and it led me into meditation and then back to yoga, which my mom had been taking me to since I was 10. You know, like, God bless her. Thank God. Because it's this tool, you know, and for any parents out there, if you're, I mean, like, you know, you're terrified about what your kids are going to get into and inevitably, because we've all done it, right? And I have an 11 year old daughter and, uh, you know, it's a tool that stays with you and it, it, whether I went so far away from it because I was telling Melinda this earlier dealing with that herniated disc. And I had this fucking severe sciatic nerve pain. I couldn't feel my right foot on the ground. I could barely touch the, touch my toes. I did. I wanted nothing to do with yoga during my NFL career. Wanted nothing to do with it. And thank God that pain had gone away. And then I'm at this place and mom goes like, Ed, why don't you go take a yoga class at this studio? And I went there and I just came back to it and it was so organic and it was like, Oh, this is, this is so right. And it just became part of my medicine and part of putting myself back together. And it's just been this constant thing of surrendering. Dale, you're talking about surrendering and you're praying to God. Like you've got these tools and you find yourself in this position where it's like, something is off here. Like I have to do something. This, my external environment is not in alignment with what I'm feeling. My soul's inclination to move in this direction. And it's like, there's nothing else but God there, you know? And, you know, for me, it's from that moment of leaving the NFL, it's just been this slow descent to rock bottom. And then this really even perhaps slower trajectory of surrender back to self, back to God. 
And over and over again, just like letting go of this shit, these ideas about who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing and leaving football. I come from this family. My dad is lifetime athlete, but also an artist. And I come from this family of athletes and artists. And I always had this, this, this undercurrent of I'm more than a football player. I'm going to write books when I'm done playing. I majored in creative writing at the university of Arizona. And, uh, even with that, I left football and had no fucking idea of who I was. No idea how to relate to anybody. Every relationship I'd ever been in was coming through this prism of me being this superstar athlete. How I related to everyone in my life and how everyone related to me. And it was just this, you know, Melinda was like, what was that experience like coming out of football? And I said, it was a death. It was a complete death. And it's been, there's been many deaths. And I'll wrap up with this because it, it continues even now. And I'm here in this exquisite location doing exactly what I love doing, right? With a person I'm so deeply in love with. <laughs> exactly. This guy's sharp. Yeah, yeah. And I taught yesterday and I mean, it's just been like doing amazing things like Kundalini at 545 watching the sun come up and lounging on the beach and jumping in the ocean and drinking fucking coconuts water out of coconuts. And, and there's this thing in me that's like, I'm like crawling out of my skin because I don't know what to do, you know? And I'm just lying there. And I look at her yesterday and I'm like, I feel so lost. And she goes, Eb, you're not lost. You're here. I was like, yeah. And she says, you're here in this beautiful place and you've got no responsibilities and that's hard for you. I was like, yeah, it's fucking hard for me to rest. It's hard for me to not have anything to do. Teaching is this funny thing because I get to be like on the fucking stage in the limelight and shit, you know, and I have to battle that. Like every, I have a podcast. Every time I get on the mic, it's like, there's this little voice going, Eb, you better say the thing, man. You better say the thing that tells everybody how fucking wise you are and how much you know and how cool you are. And you better do that thing. And I got to put that fucking voice to bed a thousand times because anytime I listen to that voice, it comes out like shit. Right? Dell, you know. And you just have to, I have to, my practice has to be, I just show up and give it right here where it's at. And for me, yesterday, I'm like, I'm in paradise doing what I love with amazing people. And I'm like, I'm lost. And it's just this fucking old thing, this old idea of like, I got to be doing to validate myself. I got to be doing to prove that I'm worth something because that's the background that I come from. If I'm not fucking conquering the world, I'm no good. So she gives me that message and I'm just like, <sighs> then this morning my mom calls <sighs> mom And she delivers this message of an experience she's just had. 
that I literally just burst into tears. And she's like, Ab, I love you. <laughs> and she's like, she said two things. She said, Ab, just get into gravity. I was like, okay. And for me, getting into gravity, it's like, just be here. Be in your feet. Feel that. Feel that weight of gravity. And then she said, Eb, just lay down on the floor and let yourself be loved. I was like, what? She's like, it's okay to put the weapons down. You know, and my mom, we've been through it, man. Like my mom, I'm overwhelmed. My life is a fucking miracle of God. It's a miracle of God because the old tools, all the shit that I had been running on for so many years, and it just stopped working because it was all about solving problems by going to war. And just allowing myself this opportunity over and over again. I'm just going to surrender, man. I'm just going to fucking surrender to what it is. Where I'm at. Okay. I can do that. You know, and it's constant. You know, and I've done ayahuasca. I've done all the shit. I've done fucking, you know, a year of LSD. And this is just by myself. You know, I'm not doing this with a shaman or anything. It's just like me. I'm like, oh, LSD? Cool. Let me do that. Oh, mushrooms? Yeah, let me get all of those. And snacks. <laughs> a lot of snacks. You know, and it's like all of that stuff is great. Yoga, all of it is so great. And it's got to be about over and over again, surrendering, surrendering to what is right here, right now. Because you are the medicine. Like this thing happening inside... Like Dell, he's sitting there in a fucking, probably like a seven-figure job at a massive media company. He's going, this is really the message I'm getting? To fucking go against this whole system? By the way, are we still sainting people? (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious, man. Because that's the ultimate, you know? That's the ultimate. Like this, you have God moving through you. I've said it before, and I, it's, it's undeniably true in my life. You are God in motion, and God is happening right here all the time. It's about are you able to get the fuck out of the way so that God can move through you over and over again? And that's just been my experience, even up to this moment right here, right now. You know, all of these incredible people are sharing their stories. And I'm thinking like, I'm like looking out on the waves. What am I going to (laughs) say? You know, and then it's just like, let me just be real. Let me be honest. Let me be true. Um, So thank you guys so much. I appreciate you and love you tons. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Beautiful. Del, you're going to wrap it up for us. I've been sitting here thinking exactly what I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs>
Honestly, I'm like, I don't know where this is being broadcast, but this is like the coolest fucking podcast I've ever seen. I mean, really amazing. Um, I mean, there's just, there's so many similarities, right? You know, the stories we're all sharing. I'm like, oh shit, yeah, two houses burned down, did that. I know what that's like, you know, um, loss, pain. God is just so spectacular. This life, this gift. The extreme beauty, these moments, you know, in places like this with beautiful people, so profound, so easy to forget it 24 hours after it's over. Find yourself off track again. Questioning why you exist. New discoveries. Oh, shit, this is why I exist. We just keep going through this incredible journey. Um, and it's interesting, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about, you know, God. And I try to share it in talks, and sometimes it works and it doesn't. But, um, you know, in the Bible... When Moses, you know, this incredible story of Moses always fascinated me as a kid because, you know, you know, dad would tell the story, but, you know, Moses is trying to free the children of Israel and Pharaoh is just not having it. And it didn't, really didn't matter, like, what miracle? Like, Moses, like, throw down a staff. Obviously, he's trusting God. He throws out a staff, turns into a serpent. Pharaoh freaks out, says, all right, get your people out of here. And it, as he leaves to go get the children of Israel to leave, every time the Bible says, then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Doesn't say like Pharaoh like turned into an asshole all of a sudden, right? Indian giver, whatever it was. <laughs> like God in this book for you know, wherever anyone was at with it. I mean, who would write that? Like when people like, oh, the, the Bible's made up by a bunch of people. Really? You're trying to make me believe in something. You're trying to make me believe that this all-powerful thing that's good and is what I have to gravitate towards. And in this book, you just said he's the reason all this pain is happening. He's hardening Pharaoh's heart. I was like, Dad, I don't understand. I don't understand why is God involved in that? My dad would give some version of, I guess, you know, because God is everything. And, you know, as you're saying, you know, God. And so Moses finally, you know, even to the last second, finally decides we're really going for it. He's able to part the river and, and, and freeze the children of Israel. And, um, God, you know, Moses goes up. And again, children of Israel, amazing experience, right? They get through it. We did it. We're finally out. And then they're immediately just like making a golden calf and like, you know, totally off, you know, track again. <laughs> right? The story is just, we do it. We all do this over and over and over again, right? But when Moses goes up the mountain and, you know, gets the Ten Commandments, these are going to be like the Ten Truths, if you can just hold on to this and, and uh, you know, life will be good. When God asks, when Moses asks God, you know, who is it I'm to say has sent me? God's answer is not tell him God sent you. 
It's not like tell them Jehovah sent you or Yahweh or all these names we use. The one moment in the Bible God gets to state his, her, their name says, I am that I am. Tell them I am that sent you. It's such a weird concept. Why would that? Why would that be the name? But then you go back to Genesis and you think we are created in the image and likeness of God. All the beauty, all the darkness, the good, the bad, it's all in and through us. And when you think about that name, like when I think about taking the Lord's name in vain, it's not, God damn it. It's, or could it be at least, I'm, maybe I shouldn't state it affirmatively, is it possible that it's when we say, I am sick, or I am afraid? In us, we carry the name of God. In us, we are carrying this experience. And right now, this is such a spectacular moment. We're all facing it. We're seeing what the ego representation of ourselves, our, our fear and our terror and our rage and our anger, what it has made of this world and what we've allowed ourselves to, what you know, the truth is to be torn from us. But I've also seen people wake up like we've never seen it before. And I've got to, you know, sit in rooms like this where we're sharing in ways we've never shared before. And I don't know how this ends. Um, but I think that at least for me and, and what I try to share with people is our journey is spectacular when we're making it with God, through God. And the more we can enroll people into reminding them how spectacular they are. When they say, I am, you know, who is going to change this world? I am. You know, if I have anger and rage, who's responsible for that? I am. And the more we seek beauty, the more we seek that love that is the open door, the more that we can get people to open that door in love, the closer we are to returning to Eden, to our birthright. And it's just spectacular sitting here with rooms full of people like this. And um, and know that God wins. Amen. I'd say that's a wrap. We went over our allotted time. And I think to no one's dismay. Thank you all. I mean, uh, wow. Like, 
just leave it at that. Just uh, thank you. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.